0: welcome to damn good movie memories with your host ryan davis this podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day
1: hello i'm dan Aykroyd, and welcome to this fine motion picture emporium It's nice to know you're here tonight rather than at home shoving cheap little plastic cartridges into cheap imported video systems that keep you and your family hostage in your own home or apartment. Now let's face it, big screen entertainment is what it's all about. We've enjoyed it for years. Movies are great. There's nothing like a good movie, or even a bad one for that matter. Remember the classics, though, such as Dr. No. (laughs) Doctor Shyvago. Now at last, Doctor Detroit. Ah, uh, attention, ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Clifford Scriblow never expected to be anything but a humble scholar. Nothing's going to change my life. My life is set. Until one night, he came upon four ladies in distress. Oh, yeah! And to protect their honor, uphold the law. Step aside, Latvia, you beat my boot And fight for the American way.
2: He became
1: the fancy dressing, flashy dancing, death-defying, jacuzzi dipping. Don't forget power walking, systems analysis, rock climbing. Oh. Oh. Dynamic defender of decency. Dr. Detroit? Dr. Detroit. Dr. Detroit! Hey, what? Dr. Do- after Detroit! I can feel my hair grow. <laughs> Is Dr. Detroit. This is the best time I've ever had in my entire life. Do you hear me, world?
0: Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Dr. Detroit from 1983. The studio was Universal Studios. The release date was May 6, 1983, with a running time of 89 minutes. The rating was R, and the budget was 8 million, and the box office took in 10.3 million making it the 68th-ranked movie of 1983. Roger Ebert at the time gave it three out of four stars, and here's his review. There's a sense in which Dr. Detroit could be a Jerry Lewis movie. It begins with the portrait of an eccentric, mild-mannered mope who leads a life of quiet desperation. Enter a mob of colorful Chicago criminals who change the mope's life forever, furnishing him with an alternate identity and a whole new outlet on life. Mix this up with some pretty girls, some chases, and lots of chances to embarrass fuddy-duddies and play with fire extinguishers, and you'd have a Jerry Lewis movie that the French would write a book about. Dr. Detroit is not, however, quite as predictable as I make it sound. Part of that is because of the studied precision of Dan Aykroyd in the title role. Instead of giving us the standard mope, and later a standard berserk maniac, he adds all sorts of little character touches that help the whole movie rise above its production line origins, There's very little comic invention in the idea for Dr. Detroit, but there's a lot of invention in Aykroyd's performance. The movie has lots of funny moments in it, some of them involving the delicate manipulation of public embarrassment. It also has one of those no-holds-barred production number endings that has become semi-official in comedies ever since It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World. I don't even know why they bother. You've seen one movie set go up for grabs. You've seen them all. Humor comes out of the characters and situations, not through the destruction of several hundred thousand dollars worth of props. But never mind. In the midst of all this, Dan Aykroyd enjoys himself and brings along a certain mad detachment that suggests he knows it's just a humble little screenplay, but is amused by its pretension. And that's the end of review. Now, I didn't see Dr. Detroit until the late 80s on home video. And really, the only reason it intrigued me at the time was because it had Dan Aykroyd in it. Since I grew up before the internet, discovering films from your favorite actors was really a chore. You either stumbled upon them looking in your you know, weekly TV listing and then saw the actors listed next to the film, or you saw the video box at your local video store. Now, I didn't love Dr. Detroit at first, seeing it as a kid, mostly because it wasn't the Blues Brothers or Ghostbusters. It wasn't even Spies Like Us. But over time, I appreciated the absurdity and the charm of this film. And today, it's even easier to enjoy a comedy like this with today's comedy films being so formulaic and self-aware that they forget to even be funny. Okay, let's get into the main cast. Well, basically, it's Dan Aykroyd playing Clifford Scridlow. Now, this is an interesting film in Aykroyd's filmography because it's really the only film where he's the main star. And pretty much every other film he's done, he's either part of a co-starring duo like the Blues Brothers or Trading Places or even Spies Like Us or he's part of an ensemble like Ghostbusters, or even the original Saturday Night Live. So even though Aykroyd is the headline star, the rest of the cast is really excellent, with Howard Hessman, who of course played Johnny Fever on WKRP in Cincinnati, Fran Drescher in an early role, Donna Dixon, and T.K. Carter. The director, Michael Pressman. Now prior to Dr. Detroit, Pressman's best-known film that he directed was the sequel to The Bad News Bears, which was Breaking Training. After Dr. Detroit, he sort of pivoted to TV movies and later to TV shows, which he's currently doing to this day. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So it started as a short story by Bruce J. Friedman, and a screenplay came out of that story. The original story had the main character of Smooth Walker as a black pimp who befriends a Jewish literature professor named Abe. Eventually, Abe gets involved in the pimp lifestyle and takes over the business started by Smooth and becomes Detroit Abe. Originally, Gregory Hines was brought in for the Smooth Walker role, and he actually told Michael Pressman that the character would be, work better as a white pimp because it wasn't as stereotypical and would be funnier on screen. It would be a better farce on film. It's almost cartoonish at times. Howard Hessman was then cast as Smooth. The character and characteristics of Dr. Detroit was all created by Dan Aykroyd. However, script-wise, it was still being written by Carl Gottlieb, who wrote Jaws and the Jerk and Robert Boris when they started shooting, which is a difficult thing to try to pull off to have some cohesiveness for the director. Another issue for the screenwriters was to delve into the tricky world of prostitution and still make it funny and lighthearted. Now, I believe they got around this issue by saying that the women were indeed prostitutes, but you never actually see them working per se. Very similar to Night Shift with Michael Keaton and Henry Winkler. And the filmmakers do a great job making each female character their own person and do not really use stereotypical angles in the film, which is refreshing. And when you watch the film, you'll notice this. The casting of the four women was a difficult process to find the right group and chemistry. It was finally narrowed down to 16 before the final four were picked, and they all got along great on set. Donna Dixon and Friend Dresher are still friends to this day. And, of course, Dan Aykroyd met Dixon for the first time during the making of this film. And the two became an item after shooting. And they later married and are still married to this day. Oh, poor Paul Stanley. Of course, if you didn't know, Paul Stanley from Kiss dated Donna Dixon before this. And kind of Dan Aykroyd stole her away in some... I think she was getting sick of Paul at that time. But we got the song I Still Love You from Kiss because of it. So the director, Michael Pressman, made a conscious effort to make many of the shots a group ensemble, meaning very rarely did you only see one of the women alone in a scene. There were often four to five people included in certain shots, which is what he intended to do because he felt comedy played better in wider reaction shots as an ensemble. Sadly, Aykroyd at the time of making this film was dealing with the very recent death of his very close friend and constant work partner, John Belushi. He kept things very private and close to the vest, and sort of bo- buried himself in the work. And there were rumors that Belushi would have had a part in Dr. Detroit. Also, there was an industry concern if Ackroyd could even carry a film on his own, as his prior roles has, a- again, been part of a ensemble. And actually, after Dr. Detroit, he would go back to being a co-star in almost every other film he appeared in. Okay, let's get into the film. So it begins hilariously with the Dr. Detroit theme song playing by Devo, While we see Clifford, that's Dan Aykroyd, power walking hilariously through downtown Chicago. He's wearing glasses, which have tiny mirrors connected to each side, so it provides vision behind him. Kind of like a car. He's wearing a headband and a tucked in t-shirt into his tiny red shorts. While he walks, well, like only Dan Aykroyd could make up. You have to see it to believe it. Essentially, he walks as fast as he can, like there's a pole connected to his back to keep him perfectly straight. Of course, everyone stares and laughs and points when he passes by, but he's oblivious. He eventually is noticed by a few people in a town car, which will come into the plot shortly.
1: Hey, hey, look. some kind of nut. Look at him. Loves his exercise. Mm -hmm. Hey, man. Nice leg. Thank you.
0: Now that car belongs to Smooth Walker, played by Howard Hessman, who is a high-end pimp. His girls include Monica, Donna Dixon, Karen, Fran Drescher, Jasmine, Lydia Lee, and Thelma, Lynn Whitfield. Smooth's driver is named Diablo, played by T.K. Carter. Now, Smooth owes a local mob boss who goes by the name of Mom, played by Kate Murtaugh, $80,000, and she wants the money immediately. But Smooth is blowing all the cash and makes up a story about not being able to pay because he's having to deal with another mobster from out of town, called the Doctor. Smooth makes up the name Dr. Detroit when he sees a calendar with the city of Detroit on it. So this buys Smooth some time temporarily, but he knows his story won't work unless he comes up with a patsy to be Dr. Detroit. So that night, Clifford goes to his favorite Indian restaurant and guess who happens to be sitting at the table near him? Of course, it's Smooth and the ladies. They all remember him from his goofy power walking earlier in the day. Smooth invites Clifford, but they've now given him the nickname of Cliff, to their table to join them for dinner and afterwards invites him for a night on the town with the ladies. We discover that Cliff is a professor of literature at a local college. They first go to a club. And we get to see him dance to Super Freak by Rick James. The women are having fun with Cliff, but don't understand why Smooth is whining and dining him. Smooth simply says he's thinking about bringing in a new partner. The group goes from club to club, drinking and smoking joints, much to the delight of the normally shy and sheltered Cliff. They eventually end up back at Smooth's luxurious apartment. Now, Cliff has no idea what sort of line line of business Smooth is in. So, Smooth decides to give him a sales pitch with help of, from the ladies, of course, who happen to be in the hot tub.
1: How'd you like to come into this business? The entertainment business? Exactly! All I want to do is share my good fortune, my my involvement with other people, my world. Oh, I... I don't know. See, I have a business, uh... I teach comparative literature at Monroe College. I'm a full assistant professor now. I, my father's chancellor of the college. I, I'm I'm committed. Think about it, Cliffy. Just think about it. Your own business. Your piece of the American dream. Nice company, bad The best employee roster in this side of heaven. Delma, Karen, Monica, Jasmine. Now that's entertainment and they'd all be working for you all for you I, 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 it's all very sudden I I have responsibilities yeah well soak
0: Relax. Enjoy.
1: Oh yeah! (laughs) ETA to splashdown two seconds.
0: (laughs) Diablo drops off Quiff at his large house the next morning, but he still lives with his parents. And we discover that Quiff's father is the president of the college that Quiff teaches at. We also find out that the expected endowment that is promised to the college, the bank will have to foreclose on their loan and shut down the college if they don't get it. George Firth and Nan Martin and Cliff's parents are hilarious and a terrific duo in the film. Smooth in the meantime has a meeting with Mom and decides to have Diablo beat him up so that Smooth can claim to Mom that it was done by Dr. Detroit and that he needs to get out of town to avoid another beating. Mom now decides that she must find out about this so-called Dr. Detroit. Smooth decides to take a one-way trip out of the country, leaving the women without a boss. Also, Mom has decided to get Thelma arrested on a trumped-up charge in order to bring Dr. Detroit out in the open. So, the ladies decide to call Cliff for help to get Thelma out of jail. Thelma has to plead in front of a judge that has a bit of a Civil War South in him, and with Thelma being black, Cliff has to do some quick thinking to get her out of trouble.
1: I have repeatedly warned counsel not to provoke the court with all.
2: This department, 20 and 1.
1: Shh. Shh. Okay. On, now Step it's aside, Latia. L-
2: You'll be eating my foot.
1: What is going on? Exactly, Your Honor. What is going on when a flower of the yes. South, a decent girl with a beautiful, good family, is arrested on her way home from her niece's confirmation and booked and incarcerated like a common woman of the streets? I'm talking about Thelma Cleland. Of the Cleland Parish Clelands a Bay St. Luke, Louisiana. Excuse me. Where our father, Colonel Judge Brian Cleland, presides over the Cleland County Fifth Circuit Bench. Now, I demand that you release this girl right now, or you'll all taste the business end of a buggy whip. Palin? Yes, sir. Get your ass over here. You got a case number? Yes, I do. 20569A Alpha R Ranger. Okay. Sure. Uh, now, just exactly what is your relationship to the
2: arrestee?
1: Uh, well, sir, the young woman is my sister. And I, I know you can believe that the family honor is at stake here. You strike me as a gentleman, sir. Surely you must understand. Well, of course I understand. My people were related to Jefferson Davis on my mother's side. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it indeed. I knew it. A son of the South. Son of what? Uh, Of the South, uh, the Confederacy. Uh, Your Honor. What? Loitering with intent to commit prostitution. Lewd behavior, soliciting for an unlawful act, bail at uh, $350, Your Honor. I can't believe my ears. This is an outrage. Let me see that thing. I mean, this is outrageous, ridiculous. Let me see that. I demand satisfaction. Get the arresting officer in here. I will tar and feather the scalawags. Hold on, Mr. Freeland. Hold on. I can release your sister on her own recognizance and dismiss this case in the interests of justice. Well, thank you. It served my family well, sir. We'd be very, very grateful. Uh, you like shrimp? Indeed, I do. Yeah, well, fine. You come down to buy your St. Look, We took you up a whole mess of shrimp. We got some shrimp in that family. How uh, about Tampa? Thank you. Uh, Thelma, Bud, come on, honey, we're going home, and not a moment too soon. Case dismissed. I can't tell you suffered here. In the-
0: <laughs> so none of Clifford's stick in the courtroom would have worked if Thelma was actually present in the courtroom before he dismissed the charges. After getting the charges dropped for Thelma, he goes back to their apartment. The women let him know that Smooth said Cliff was in charge while he was out of town. Though they don't realize he skipped town, pern completely. Mom then decides to make an unexpected visit to the apartment to collect on the debt and smash up the apartment a bit since Smooth is gone. The normally reserved Cliff suddenly changes his demeanor and protects the women and stands up to Mom and her henchmen. He claims to also work for Dr. Detroit and arranges for Mom to meet with the doctor the next night. Now this is just a wacky scene as Cliff acts like he knows martial arts. The scene shows the brilliance of Ackroyd's physical comedy. Once mom leaves, Cliff finally realizes that the ladies are actually prostitutes, and that he now has to run their affairs. But to keep his normal life separate, he decides that he'll become Dr. Detroit, for the business duties for the four women. And even though Cliff wants to keep Dr. Detroit on the down low, Diablo ends up spreading the word on the streets about the badass doctor. The next day, Cliff decides to give Mom a call and creates the verbal persona of Dr. Detroit, which sounds like someone in a constant state of constipation. (laughs) It's like, meh. (laughs) Though, some have compared his voice to an evil version of Truman Capote. The next step is to create a costume, which is a cross between a pimp and Dr. Doom from Marvel Comics. Now, Dan Aykroyd has absolutely loved doing the Doctor character and even told the director he could do the voice all day and never get tired of it. That night, Cliff as Dr. Detroit meets with Mom and her goons at the junkyard.
1: uh, Right now... Which one of you is mom? (laughs) (laughs) Punctuality is a virtue, my good madam. Let's chew the fat. Just what that's supposed to mean? Nothing personal, love chunks, but can we get to it? You know, I hate to come down from Wayne County. I have businesses in Lansing. I have muffler shops, chicken chains. I got slums to collect the rent from. I have a chiropractic practice. I make adjustments to the human spine. And this little trip has cut far too much into my professional time. I figured that since you're hustling my turf, we should talk. I run this town. Ah, ah, lurking in the dark, nasty things, come out. Okay, fellas, come on. Come out. <laughs> Come on out here. Yeah, that's right. Out here where, where the doctor can see you. Right now, come on, Squidlow, Be cool, man. Be cool. Don't blow it, man. Do you want to move in on me without permission, without consideration? You got to pay. The doctor doesn't pay. That's it? The doctor doesn't pay and he doesn't worry. Now, Mom, if you want trouble, I am talking about scorched earth, no survival, wholesale destruction. Oh,
0: help, oh, help, God God, live, oh my rest.
1: God. Body, bags, and fire, trouble, and you just keep coming out. You don't know what trouble is, jerk off. Mom, I am going to rip off your head and shit down your neck. Kill <laughs> <laughs> him! <laughs>
0: what ensues is a crazy chase in the junkyard with cliff constantly escaping capture including swinging from a high-rise pulley and eventually snagging mom with a forklift before dropping her in a pile of junk cars diablo and the girls steal a tow truck and grab cliff and escape from the yard now, the junkyard scene was very well planned in pre-production, as there were lots of moving parts in that complicated scene. Plus, the escape had to be perfect with the stunned person because when they crash through the junkyard wall, it's like a cartoon escape. All right, there's about 30 minutes left, and there's plenty of craziness ahead. Will Cliff, or Dr. Detroit, be able to defeat Mom? How will Cliff pull off being both himself and the doctor, which all culminates in a banquet hall hosting both the player's ball, which is for pimps, and the Moreau College alumni dinner. You're just gonna have to watch the film to find out. But I would re remiss if I didn't leave you with a quip from a guest appearance from the godfather of Soul himself, the great James Brown. Ladies and
1: gentlemen, I'm, I'm out the all your traffic allow me to Fortunately, I have a business uh, in another part of the hotel, a prior commitment, actually a a small chiropractic service I was supposed to perform. (laughs) But uh, if anybody is a king here tonight, it is this man, Mr. Try Me, Mr. Please Please Please, Mr. This is a Man's World. I give you the hardest working man in show business, ladies and gentlemen, James Brown.
0: Now, of course, Aykroyd had a relationship with James Brown because they worked together on the Blues Brothers. And that is how he became part of Dr. Detroit. Now, is Dr. Detroit anywhere near as good as the Blues Brothers or Ghostbusters? Of course not. But it's still a fun ride, and if you're a fan of wacky 80s comedies, this is a fun ride. And there is a really funny joke at the end of the film, which is very tongue-in-cheek, which after the outcomes of each of the main characters, kind of a la Animal House, we see a graphic that says, The Doctor returns in Dr. Detroit 2. The Wrath of Mom, you know, kind of like the Star Trek Wrath of Khan. (laughs) Now, if the film would have been a hit, a sequel would have definitely been made, but the initial box office totals were not great, and though like a lot of films in the 80s, this film had a second life on home video and cable. All right, some fun facts. Being released only a few weeks prior to Return of the Jedi certainly did not help Dr. Detroit at the box office because the slow start pretty much made it a forgotten film once Jedi came out to the theaters. Plus, being rated R, hurt the film with younger viewers who couldn't see it in the theaters. Fran Dresser said in her autobiography that the movie was expected to be a box office hit. But of course, it didn't pan out that way. All right, we basically have a grown-up rock episode, but I had interviewed them separately. And originally, Sonny was going to do this, and then he did. And then I asked Stephen, like, oh, do you like Dr. Detroit? And he's like, oh, yeah, I do, too. So we ended up, <laughs> we ended up interviewing, got both of them. So, they're a lot of fun. We talk about Dr. Detroit, and I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. All right, we are back with, well, I could call him Doc Hollywood. We already called, you know, we, we did Doc Hollywood before Michael J. Fox, but we're going to talk about Dr. Detroit with Sonny Pooney from the Grown Up Rock Podcast and Podcast Rock City. Welcome back, Sonny. What's going on, man? So, I, was, I always give you a list of movies. Um, uh, to that you might be interested in, and uh, and this was the one that I, I threw it out there, and I wasn't sure, but you you grabbed this one. You said there's a connection of why you picked Doctor Detroit from 1983, and and why is that?
2: So this you know this movie comes out when I'm 13, 14 years old. So this mm-hmm. was definitely a rental. I was absolutely in love with Donna <laughs> Dixon from <laughs> Bosom Buddies. Yep. So I, I was, and you know, back then there's no internet, right? So, nope. uh, find out she's an actress and it's like, okay, what are the Donna Dixon movies? So I was on a hunt and I uh, saw this at the rental. So had to get it. So I'm assuming you love spies like us as well. I love it. Love spies <laughs> like us love bosom buddies. Those are probably, and this one, those three are probably the where I've seen Donna Dixon the most. Cause she hasn't done a ton of stuff.
0: Well, I mean, and yeah, no, not at all, because um, she met she met Dan Aykroyd here. Now, you know this because you're a huge Kiss fan and everything. But at the time, she was just getting off. Either she was towards the end of the relationship or just broken up with Paul Stanley from Kiss. And uh, and of course, that led to a couple of good songs for for for, uh, for Kiss. But just as as a male, that that seemed like an interesting transition from Paul to Dan. I mean, they're talk, talk about
2: polar opposites. We joke about it all the time, uh, <laughs> in kiss world, right? Uh-huh. That Paul's ego took such a hit, like, dude, she picked Dan Aykroyd over you. Yeah. Like, come on, you're <laughs> Paul Stanley. You were in the biggest band in the world for a while. Yep. Um, I had to have been a big ego hit and we know Paul sensitive. So that, yes. that couldn't have been uh, easy, but you know what? Dan didn't exactly go unscathed either because he lost Carrie Fisher to Paul Simon. So good point. Uh, and nobody was unhurt, I guess.
0: Yeah, totally. But, you know, Dan Aykroyd is really a genius in many ways. And and sometimes I know women are definitely kind, kinder about looks at the, you know, and he is. Yeah. You know, Dan Aykroyd wasn't that bad of a looking guy in, uh, in his younger years. So, uh,
2: you know, that's, that's I, kudos to him. And they're still married to this day. So it, it had to be right. Funny works. I will tell you that, you yeah. know, if you ask Nicole. What's the parts of Sonny you like the best? And the first thing that probably comes to her mind is he makes me laugh. Sure. Right? And so you don't have to be GQ if you've got a little bit of a comedic factor to you.
0: Absolutely, because at the end of the day, all of us are going to lose our looks no matter what. You you better like the person (laughs) you're with, you know. Uh, So speaking of Dan Aykroyd, and this is super interesting, and I didn't even realize it until I started to kind of look through his filmography. This is really the only movie he stars in alone. Like he is the main star. Pretty much every other thing he's in, it's an ensemble or it's a buddy or
2: or something like that. And, And why do you think that is? Uh, I think what they're doing is trying to play up that whole slapstick overacting. Like he's really playing Jim Carrey a generation before here. Sure. That's what he's doing, right? He's a solo guy. <laughs> and I was surprised to him that Howard Hessman's character isn't bigger in the movie. Like he, he's listening to the movie, obviously he's in the movie, obviously, but screen time wise, if he has a 10th of the movie, I'd be surprised. Yeah, he's out of the country. For all we know, right? So, but there's this piece of man, Ackroyd. I don't know if anybody could be the geek of all geeks. Like, were those side view mirrors that he was running with on his <laughs> yes, glasses? That's right. Oh my god! Dude. And he's <laughs> and then when the water hits him, oh, it doesn't so even good. phase him. Right? It happens so often that it doesn't even phase him. Yeah, yeah, he's just like lovely, and he
0: keeps going. <laughs> so. Yeah. He, he's speed walking to Devo, which is great. A title, a title track for, for this movie, but yeah, he's got these super short shorts. Uh, he's not like super thin. Like he's definitely, you know, he's kind of, uh, uh, you know, he's not real thin like he was in the blues brothers. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a
2: funny look and he plays it perfectly. So what I was thinking is I'm like, Oh, about 80% of this movie, I can see somebody else is doing the speed walking. And the whole side view I don't know if he could pull this off. But most of the movie, I think Robin Williams could have pulled off.
0: That's a great point. Absolutely. Just like the, the zaniness.
2: Yeah, the exactly. That's the word. The zaniness, no problem. The nerdiness, the geek, problem. Because I think Dan does it in a way where you're not laughing at him. You're almost embarrassed with him. Yes, and Robin does that in a way where you're laughing along with him, and I think it's because of that stupid laugh track during more Mindy that's stuck in your head.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. But if you go back to like Saturday Night Live, I mean, Dan Ackery could do anything. Like, he, and, yeah. and the the voices, man,
2: his his voices are so good. And it's interesting because I was, uh, and I didn't know this until the other day. I'm <laughs> like, man, this character that he's playing is very similar to Trading Places. Yeah. The, the movie came out the same year, exactly. so he had probably just played that character.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny because like and sad at the same time, much of the stuff that he wrote, it was always with uh, John Belushi. It was always uh, going to be, oh, this is whether it be Ghostbusters, probably uh, Trading Places as well. Like uh, it just they were always vehicles for him and him and John. And so it, it must have been really difficult for him um, to kind of get out of that mindset and almost be like a solo you know, type of, type of actor.
2: Yeah. I think he did it well though. Uh, Now I'll tell you the other part that connected to me personally in this movie is the whole Indian restaurant thing, right? Oh yeah. in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I can tell you there ain't girls that look like that in any Indian restaurant I've ever (laughs) been in. There is nobody. Right. And even between the four girls, this is my personal opinion. There's Donna Dixon and there's the three others. Like they're, they're not even close. (laughs) They're not even the same territory to me. Well, I do. uh, Fran Drescher was great.
0: Like uh, she's 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 actually very funny in in this scene, especially when she becomes the cook. You know, this
2: is honestly the only thing I can tolerate her in.
0: Really, I'm actually not a big Fran fan. Oh, okay. And try saying that ten times quick.
2: Uh, Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's
0: true. Let's get in because, you know, I have you. We we talk music a lot because you have two, uh, you know, you're on many music podcasts. I, I think it, we'd be uh, remiss if we kind of touched upon it, is, you know, the songs in this. There are some great music on, on this uh, soundtrack. Uh, w- what are some of your favorite standout tracks here?
2: Well, I think, you know, James Brown, uh, absolutely. I love James Brown. I think yeah. him being and doing a live performance because he looked good, he danced oh, yeah. well. Like this was the point in the career he'd been in blues brothers. He, he was about to be in Rocky four. He was in Miami yep. vice a few years later. Like he was just coming back at that point. Yes. So that part's really cool. I love the Devo song. I thought it was great. Uh, this Patty Brooks chick. she was a disco lady and yep. I think she has a great voice, but you know what? None of these songs are really huge hits.
0: No, no. I even get off of that thing. Like, uh, and I love that though, because it's just, it's so perfect. Uh, you know, that it's actually a vital
2: scene towards the end. Like it, it kind of puts everything together, you know? Yeah. And the interesting part is I think the biggest hit on this is probably super freak, but it's not on the soundtrack. Exactly. Exactly.
0: And it was right around. Yeah. Cause it was probably two years old. Cause I think this came out, that came out in 81. Uh, but the song that like I reconnected with, and I think any younger, uh, viewer and listener would connect with is Chuck Brown and the soul searchers busting loose.
2: Oh yeah. Because,
0: uh, usher or no, uh, Nelly, Nelly straight up stole it with, uh, getting hot in here.
2: That's why I love that song so much. Yeah. I did not realize that till the other day. So I watched this the other day and I'm like, wait a second. That's that Nellie song. That's why I like that song so much. Cause there isn't really anything else Nellie does. I like, no. but for some reason that song had connected with me and, and I remembered, I'm like, Oh, there's a similarity. That's what the problem is.
0: That's actually a good album. I think it came out in 79 um, and it's a great funk soul album. I actually went on Discogs just to go get it because you can't can't find it anywhere. And uh, you can if, if you listen to Spotify, you can listen to Chuck Brown and, and hear that song. And I think uh, people really dig it. Um, we, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Mom and uh, Kate Murtaugh.
2: How did you feel about that character? Because she, she has some great lines, too. She had some great lines, right? Like, I'm only going to wait here. What was that? Five or 10 minutes? Well, then what are you going to do? Well, I guess I'll wait longer. Like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of good lines. I don't know her that well. Um, and I don't know if a real bad guy, you know, Gary Oldman would have done any better to be right. honest with you. Right. Like it needs to be kind of this weird, kitschy character that doesn't really take themselves too seriously I don't know how you have a forklift like kind of sneak up on you I don't understand that part but uh, <laughs> I guess it's supposed to be a funny movie so I guess we'll go with it um, but I thought she did fine
0: yeah yeah and uh, yeah she did. like there were some like subtle things where like you, she's in her office and you see like her singing in the hospital bed and they were wis- wishing her well because she had like I think a, like her colon removed or something like that <laughs> like, yeah so, yeah. so she she's supposed to be portrayed as this kind of badass um, and then okay so how did you feel about dr detroit the actual you know the alter ego of of clifford
2: okay so first of all the dress is just right the the outfit is yeah. ridiculous but i guess oh, it yeah. has to be right has so be. uh so is pet detective right so the out- outfit has to be d- ridiculous i don't quite understand the knight on the round table's hand though that <laughs> that part i don't get. Yeah. right that 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 part in me the voice I I guess you have to do something different and he can pull it off. So that works. But I was thinking the doctor's businesses are fairly diversified. So he mentions muffler shops, chicken chains, slums to collect the rent from (laughs) chiropractic practice practice, because he makes adjustments to the spine. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So it's a little ridiculous of a story, to be honest with you. Like this is not the most well-written story on the planet. No, something about Ackroyd works though.
0: Absolutely. Like he totally makes his work and it's become a cult classic. It didn't do well. And at the very, very end, there's a quote, co- you know, there's like the, the return of mom instead of like the, you know, the Rathacon, um, you know, in Star Trek. And so it was, I, I think they thought this might be big enough to where, um, there could be sequels, but that obviously never happened.
2: Yeah. And I think the big miss here is Hessman. Um, Sure. The guy just has a swagger. Like it's something about the eyes, the smile, the charisma like this. He was not in enough big budget movies. I don't know the history of Howard Hessman is possible. I guess that uh, maybe he had problem with drugs and alcohol. I don't know, mm-hmm. but this is a guy that really could have made a lot, a lot of money in some big productions. Right. Right. Well, of course, I mean, most people know him
0: as, uh, you know, Johnny Fever and WKRP. Right. Uh, that's where I think he got super, um, super big, but he was also, you know, he was in police Academy too, which actually was a funny sequel. I, I used to like, and, uh, he was in head of the class, um, in, in the mid
2: eighties. Yeah. Just, just a few. Right. And yeah. they, uh, the criticism I have is that they didn't use him enough in this movie, Sure. Right? they wrote him out almost too early. Um, right.
0: And, and I almost wonder, like, if maybe he wasn't happy with things. And so they kind of had to because it ended up being like, you know, uh, DiVallo, uh, played by T.K. Carter, almost became like, you know, his the second in command.
2: Yeah. And uh, there's some I've never heard the, this line anywhere else. <laughs> You got your fuzzy little white ass in a crack. I've never heard that anywhere else. Um, So he definitely plays an interesting part. But I was thinking, uh, because, you know, just the cancel culture we're kind of living in, depending on how you feel about that, right? Yeah. When when Howard says, remember my grandfather owned your grandfather? I was like, oh, my God. Like, that hit me totally differently in 2021 than it hit me probably in 1990 when I saw this movie
0: but you use a, the good term hit me because that's what he wanted he, he needed to be beat up because if people are not well, hopefully this is out of context for most people so uh, Howard Hesman's character ha- is acting like uh, he has to go back to mom and act like he got beat up by Dr. Detroit and so he needs Diavolo Deval- De- to hit him and Diavolo won't do it and so that's why he's basically taunting him with everything he's got to get and, uh, and he won't stop hitting him after he said that so yeah <laughs> um, okay so uh, did you recently we watch this or, or is, it, is it been a while no no i recently watched what uh what
2: did you pick up this time um th- compared to, to past times i've never heard of hindu fried chicken <laughs> right i'm like wait a second I, that doesn't exist okay whatever um i had never really paid that much attention to jasmine but i'm like man if she was dancing at my party i'm not sure i would notice all the other weird things that are happening at this party right now either right she kind of played that part well um, that whole dance scene that they do, which is similar to what like Chevy Chase did in that sequel he did. Um, you know, there's in their Austin power dance scenes. Like, I just don't understand those dance scenes much. And I'm like, ah, uh, that's kind of weird. Cause it kind of kitschied up this movie a little, I guess it's necessary. And then, and then I'm like, wait a second. There was never a, the doctor returns in Dr. Detroit two? that, uh, the wrath of mom, that movie yeah. didn't come out, did it?
0: No, no. And that's why I loved it. It was almost like a, a, a psych gag. And I think at part of, they were probably hoping this would be big, because at that point, pretty much everything Dan Aykroyd was in did, did pretty well.
2: Yeah, I'm surprised that there wasn't uh, a second movie. And I remember it was a few watches before I realized who Lynn Whitfield was, mm. because I really liked her in a thin line between love and hate. And she was in Head of State. Like, I I really like those movies, and I'm like, oh, she's really young, though, so it's hard to tell that that's her, but uh, there's a few facial expressions, I'm like, oh, wait a second, I know that lady, and I had realized it a few years ago.
0: Totally, yeah, she plays Thelma, this is her first uh, movie, she was in Hill Street Blues uh, in a couple episodes before that, but yeah, super, super early on, and then she was mostly in TV shows uh, pretty much for the rest of her career.
2: Yeah, I don't remember a lot of TV shows she was in, but I think she's one of those actresses that you know do an episode in this show and an episode on that show. And yeah, I don't know if she was a lead in anything.
0: Right, right. But hey, if you're if you're a working actor, that's all that matters. You can do pretty well.
2: Well, <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. feel good movie. There's no doubt about it. Oh, it's, it's worth ridiculous the watch, yeah. mm-hmm. but uh, it, it's not exactly. Uh, this isn't gonna win any awards.
0: Not at all. I think this has a special place. If you like 80s movies, this is fun. If you like Dan Aykroyd, this is fun. Um, and if you're also into movies that um, as you were kind of saying it, it can be a bit um, less sanitary as it everything is now, then you can have fun with it. Because I think that's the problem with, with today's movies. They have to check so many boxes that they forget about being funny and they forget about a good script because they have to make sure they don't offend anyone. So that's why I really like going back to other movies. And I can suspect you know, I can say, okay, well, this doesn't work anymore, but I can still enjoy the
2: movie. So, yeah, and I like going back to these movies. Same reason, right? There's yeah. less rules. It feels like, um, and then second is you realize who they are today, right? Yeah. It's like, wow, this was really early in their career, and Demi Moore really had a really good career in some of the movies that we've talked about in the past, right? And yep. how she kind of grew. McRoy's career really grew. We realize he ends up doing a bunch of buddy cop movies right? And uh, he doesn't really go solo again. Rob Lowe, uh, uh, in some of the other movies we've talked about, um, uh, all of these actors that we've talked about in the past,
0: even Fran Drescher. I mean, she would be huge with the nanny, which
2: that's what drove me nuts. I hate that laugh. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, so yeah, but like, that's why I'm kind of almost sad that Howard Hessman didn't have something bigger. Like Donna Dixon didn't have a bunch of movies out there. But really, they ended up, I guess, pursuing other things, and this maybe wasn't it, or maybe they had it beforehand and I didn't realize it because I don't really watch any movies that are older than seventy-eight, seventy-seven. Sure,
0: sure, yeah, absolutely. Did you watch the original Saturday Night Live when, it, or was that
2: just you just missed out on that? I tried Saturday Night Live several times. I I found that I don't really like skit type comedy. Okay. Like I like comedy. slapstick. I love sitcoms. I love funny movies. Mm-hmm. Sketch comedy for some reason doesn't hit it for me, but then I love stand-up comedy. So it's sketch comedy that's the problem for me.
0: I see. So do you like I mean, do you like the Blues Brothers? Do you like Wayne's World? That those oh, type of movies? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely.
2: Because those are basically buddy cop films without being cops. That's a
0: good point. That's true. They're just buddy movies. That, that's yeah. a good point. And by the way, I did pick the the two best of the Saturday Night Live movies. Most of them fail hard. So, yeah. <laughs> as always, Sonny, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, sir. All right. We're back with Stephen Michael from the Grown Up Rock Podcast. Welcome back, Stephen.
3: Thanks for having me, Brian. Today, I would like you to refer to me as Squigglo, please. <laughs>
0: Not not Doctor uh, Doctor Atlanta or anything like that. No, or mom, <laughs> mom. Okay, let's get right into it. How did you feel about Dan Aykroyd's voice when he was portraying the the, the doctor?
3: Looking back on it, creepy, but right. <laughs> but at the time, funny
0: yeah it was almost like you know the the voice box type of thing but i guess he had to do it because you know well look i mean dan Aykroyd came from from snl where he's doing all sorts of different characters and his voices are great i i I love when he did that but yeah this is yeah it's kind of (laughs) jarring listening to it today yeah no doubt it's definitely kind of creepy
3: looking uh having not watched this movie in such a long time and going back to it because what year did this movie come out 83, so the same year as Trading Places. Yeah, I was still in high school at that point, so (laughs) definitely. And this movie was uh, rated R, correct? Definitely, yep. Yeah, because there were a lot of F-bombs in this movie, I think, if I recall correctly.
0: There was, and and then just implying because, I mean, it's basically he's running around with, uh, you know, a group of prostitutes, too. So that alone uh, was leading to probably an R rating. But Hey, uh, hey, you say that like that's a bad thing. uh, It's not a bad thing. Look, these are the movies we were looking forward to. I mean, (laughs) pre-internet, like, we were looking for anything we can get (laughs) our hands on.
3: Are you kidding? If I had a feather cap and a Cadillac back in 83, I would have been
0: cool. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, let's get into it. I I think the most interesting part about Dan Aykroyd's career is really this is the only movie he was the the absolute star because every other movie he was in, he was like the sidekick or he was part of an ensemble. Why do you think that is?
3: Uh, You know, probably because they just never let him stand on his own really uh, early on. And so his coming up through the system and the Saturday Night Live thing. Saturday Night Live, you know, I don't remember if back then they were branching off and making their actors stars right away. Like, you know, Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd and some of those guys at the beginning. Belushi, of course, those guys were the first to break, you know, go out there and do movies on their own. Uh, and ever since then, it's been like a thing, right? Every every uh, Saturday Night Live cast has somebody that goes out and does a movie on their own, becomes a star, usually.
0: Yeah, and Chevy Chase was really, um, I think, the first one to kind of get a big head about things, and they would actually make fun of him in <laughs> years prior, years after. But he only was on Saturday Night Live for one year, and then he went straight to film, and, and then that became like the blueprint.
3: Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I've heard he's like uh, he's really hardcore, hard to work with.
0: It, I've heard the same thing as well. And he kind of let that success go to his head. But like he was one of the biggest stars, comedy stars at, at, in the 80s at one point. Well, the interesting thing about Aykroyd, I think part of it, and, and, and it's kind of sad thinking about it, about it now, a lot of what he wrote. It was almost he was always writing it, you know, with Belushi in mind. You know, even Ghostbusters, like that. You know, it was supposed to be, you know, Belushi as as one of the the main guys. And so, um, yeah, I I think at this point he was still trying to deal with uh, the loss of his
3: best friend. Ah, It depends on how you want to look at that. I don't know if this movie was interesting in going back and watching it because it definitely it definitely hit that. that that historic part in my life where it you know high school and all that other stuff but it also uh, had some darker moments
0: in it and what would the darker moments be for you
3: well i mean
0: like you said
3: uh some of the the drugs and the prostitution and things like that were
0: definitely <laughs> uh up front and center right Sure, sure. But then you have like, you know, did you ever see the movie Night Shift with uh, Henry Winkler? I love that movie. Yeah. And that was a similar one where there was there's some darkness into it, but it's still hilarious, mostly because of Michael Keaton. Correct. Yeah, correct. So it's probably similar in a way. And I think, yeah, you're right that you get in kind of the seediness, but it never gets... I, I don't know. I as Sonny put it, because Sonny also uh, enjoys this movie. He wanted more Howard Hessman, and then Howard Hessman's in it, but then he's just gone. So I, I wonder why that happened.
3: Well, I think maybe because um, I don't know the the character's name, but the guy that played the uh, the butler, the driver, not butler,
0: I guess. The oh, uh, Diavolo. Yeah. Yeah. T.K. That. That guy really
3: shined, I thought. Sure. I thought he was amazing. But I think, you know, why this movie never really takes a dark turn is because it is so um, uh, just ridiculous. I mean, I don't know a better word, right? There's a lot of ridiculousness uh, from the the outfits to, uh, you know, to the characters and the things that go on, you know.
0: Right. So, you know, how did you feel about Dr. Detroit's outfit? Would you have changed that? But he almost kind of looks like Dr. Doom from the uh, Marvel comics.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of weird things with the mechanical hand. And yeah, uh, yeah that's that's where it all plays parts in. Right. It's it's just kind of uh, uh, goofy uh, as far as that goes. But It was, again, it was ridiculous and outlandish, but it was all right. I thought it was, it was, uh, like a, like you said, a robo pimp.
0: Yeah, exactly. good one. Good one. Actually, that, that should be a a new movie. Robo pimp. That would be good. Uh, what are your favorite scenes? You just rewatched this. What what are, or no, you did just rewatch this, but, uh, you, maybe six months ago, I think you said, um, what, what are some of the, the standout, um, funny scenes for you?
3: One of the standout scenes, bar none, is get down with your bad hot keto self. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's something I use to this day. That's awesome. <laughs> so I don't know. There's there's um, the fight scenes with the um, in the junkyard. Uh, with are, yep. Yeah, with mom are hilarious. Mom's henchmen are kind of <laughs> stupid. Those yeah. two. Those two guys. That's kind of goofy. The fact that they chose to make the drug Lord mom versus like some sort of just straight up drug Lord. Right. Right. Uh, You know, so that's pretty funny. Uh, There's I just I like this movie a lot. It's something that, uh, like I said, keep going back to my high school years. And uh, it's just one of those movies. that's ridiculous, but funny and kept me entertained the whole time.
0: How about you? Yeah, and I I really like the mom character because she's so over the top and she's just so brutal. <laughs> like, like there's just some really funny scenes with her in it. Even subtle things like uh you know when she's sitting in her office and and, and they don't even mention it, but you see in the background there's like a, a well wishes. Uh, she had her like her colon removed or something like that. <laughs> <And> like she's <laughs> just she's sitting there with a like kind of a smile on her face and it's just like stuff like that. It's great, you know. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Of the of the ladies, who is your favorite? I, I guess if I had to put one on, it has to be Donna Dixon, right? Well, yeah, and then it's kind of a leading question because you are, um, you know, your your podcast covers music, and of course, Donna Dixon was in a relationship with uh, uh, Paul Stanley from Kiss right around this time, and mm-hmm. uh, and then of course she she you know she left Paul or or they they split up, and and of course. She went with Dan Aykroyd. They're still married to this day, so I think it worked out fine, but uh, Paul was pretty much devastated from that.
3: Yeah, it all happened right at this time because this is the movie that put Aykroyd and Donna Dixon together, and so they end up, the story goes, they end up falling in love, and she ends up with Aykroyd, and Paul was devastated at this time. I think there's a couple of songs that came out of this whole relationship, which I don't necessarily remember, but yeah, uh, You know, was it was was Paul devastated because he was in love or was Paul devastated because the great star child Paul Mm -hmm. Stanley lost the beautiful blonde to Dr. Detroit, for God's (laughs)
0: sakes. (laughs) That's right. The ego of Paul. But uh, look, Aykroyd's brilliant and he's funny. And, uh, you know, sometimes it goes beyond just, uh, you know, how you look and and your your fame.
3: But Brian, come on. If you're (laughs) a chick, who do you want to date? Paul Stanley or Dan Aykroyd?
0: Uh, well, Dan Aykroyd definitely makes me laugh more.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's it's a well known fact that women love a great sense of humor, right? I think Absolutely. that's a, that's a thing. But uh, and Paul probably not that funny. I mean, let's be honest; he's probably yeah, not yeah. got a great sense of humor. But in looks alone, Aykroyd is really. I mean, that's like that's like. Um, probably why i love
0: it oh, yeah. love it is
3: julia roberts <laughs> that's probably like losing a. that's probably like losing a girlfriend to urkel for god's sakes <laughs> for somebody like paul stanley let me get this
0: right you're going yeah. with urkel and not choosing me <laughs> well i think paul should then take a look in the mirror man because uh you know he <laughs> might have to change up some stuff it's not all and, about the the star job
3: and or get a sense of humor
0: <laughs> and or get it exactly, exactly. Don't just rely on love guns. So, yeah, lighten up, Francis. <laughs> we'll eventually cover stripes as well. Uh, yeah, the other, I uh, the other big uh, uh, female in, in that would, of course, be Fran Drescher. Uh, way before you know, she'd become super famous in, in the nanny. That's correct, and she
3: did a couple of movies around the same time. What wasn't she She was also in Night Shift, wasn't she? I don't know about Night Shift, but her her film debut was uh, Saturday Night Fever. Saturday Night Fever, and she was in Spinal Tap. But she yes. also she did something else that was similar to Doctor Detroit at this time. And I, I thought it was Night Shift, but maybe it was something else. I'm definitely usually wrong with stuff like this. Well, she
0: was in uh, American Hot Wax. Uh, now, OK, and then that we had kind of uh, briefly talked about it, the Hollywood Nights, uh, the one that, you know, that's kind of Porky's and uh, American Graffiti. That was her other big, big movie prior to Dr. Detroit.
3: Yeah, like normal. Those aren't the ones I'm talking about. And <laughs> I'm probably wrong. And I'm sure my friend Pooney will be quick to point out that I'm wrong. But
0: but, but yeah, she was kind of a a, a journeyman or journeywoman act, actress. Um, throughout the 80s, she would be in, you know, like UHF, you know, she even mentioned spinal tap. But yeah, until she hit um, um, the nanny, then, you know, that that's where she really took off.
3: And She wasn't in anything else that I was thinking. So once again, I'm wrong. <laughs> which is normal I don't, you have these damn memories from your childhood and you almost swear bomb and they end up being wrong and it's so de, it's deflating
0: <laughs> i know but that's why we do this we do we do damn good movies just for this let's right. get it since you're you you you, you are on a, a music podcast there's some great music in this what, what are some of your favorite songs from dr detroit
3: Well, you're going to have to feed me because, again, it was six months from uh, the last time I watched this, so I don't remember, and I didn't study the soundtrack, so what was in this?
0: Well, the opening theme is actually by Devo. Um, It's just the theme from Dr. Detroit where he's doing the power walking. Yep, I remember that. Liked it. Yep, and then, of course, you had the huge hit uh, Super Freak uh, from Rick James that's playing. Oh, yeah. Okay, I remember that now, too. Uh, one my favorite song on this is uh, Bustin' Loose by Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers, which eventually would have been um, kind of borrowed heavily by uh, Nellie's hot in here. Huh? Uh, don't recall that one. OK. And then, of course, it, one of the best scenes in the entire movie, and it goes back to the Blues Brothers connection, I'm sure, is James Brown's in this. Ah, oh, that's right. What is the scene with him? They are. So it's the um, the with the the ball, the pimp, the you know, the the pimp ball, the player, yeah. basically. Yeah. And uh, so so Ackroyd's going back and forth between being, you know, Scridlow and then Dr. Detroit. And so in the in the pimp, uh, you know, ball, James Brown's the main entertainment.
3: This is where he's floating back and forth between the school board, uh, yes. like the board at the college and yep. the uh, and the player's ball. That's right. And and uh, James Brown has the the really nice slicked back uh, hairdo type yeah. thing. Green outfit. Yeah. Yeah. That that was great. It was just a cameo, if I recall correctly,
0: though. Right? Yeah, but they, they pretty much do a full version of get off that thing. So, yeah.
3: Love James Brown.
0: Oh, he's so good, and of course, I mean, he, Ackroyd had a relationship with them because of the Blues Brothers, um, so it was probably um, it was an it was a nice get for for that for the movie. For me, it's always been the most memorable scene of, of the yeah, film. Yeah, that's awesome. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the music kind of stuck out for you, but not not so much. Yeah, I mean,
3: you know, movies are a funny thing to me, and, let, and that's why when I know we're doing these episodes, I literally have to go watch the movie because I just. I can't hold on to some of that stuff unless it's a movie like a rock star where the music is pretty much what the movie is about. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to latch on to those things. I'll go back and watch a movie these days and something will pop up in the background. Like, you know, and you'll be like, wow, uh, it's a poison song, you <laughs> know? And it's like, uh, I draw into that and set, you know, make comments like, damn, I don't even remember Uh, This song being out at the time and stuff like that. So uh, there's a few movies that stick out in my head. This wasn't necessarily one of them where I was like, God, the soundtrack to this is really good. But uh, as you mentioned some of those songs, yeah, I I remember them now that you mentioned them and I, I enjoyed some of this stuff for sure.
0: And obviously the movie didn't do as well as they thought, because at the very end there's, I don't know whether it's tongue in cheek or not, but they they kind of tease a sequel to this at the very end, at the end of the credits. Uh, do you think there should have been a sequel or wo- where would you have taken, uh, you know, a Dr. Detroit two? Uh, I don't know, but this is another movie that
3: probably, uh, Hollywood can make again. It would be funny, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, man. I do remember that. And, was this movie
0: a flop at the box office? It, yeah, it didn't do that well at all. Yeah. I mean, especially compared to, I mean, he was in. Wait, well, he did the Blues Brothers. Uh, yeah. He was in 1941, I think, even before that. Um, and then, um, you know, he uh, Trading Places came out in '83, so that's those were pretty big hits. And then Which the next year he being Ghostbusters. So,
3: well, 41 wasn't a hit. 1941 no. wasn't a hit. No, and that was the Spielberg debut,
0: right? Correct. Uh, well, not debut, but it was after Jaws. Yeah,
3: Yeah. so that movie didn't do that well. He kept being able to be an actor, probably, from things like uh, Trading Places and uh, Ghostbusters.
0: But, um, and he was in uh, kind of smaller films, like he was in um, Neighbors with Belushi, which is definitely a dark comedy. And that wasn't a huge hit, if I recall correctly, either. No, no. I mean, by far, his biggest hits were uh, Blues Brothers and, and Trading Places early on. And Ghostbusters, at which came out the year after, yeah, yeah, definitely. correct, yeah, and then yeah. even do some fun movies in the eighties, like I, I enjoy Spies Like Us with uh, Chevy loved, Chase, and, loved it, yeah, and Dragnet was super funny with Tom Hanks, so and then The Great Outdoors with John Candy. The Great Outdoors was kind of met
3: to me. Is that was that a really, really? funny oh, movie? Yeah, because really? yeah,
0: they're 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 like uh, they're like family friends that uh, they they go on a vacation out in the woods and uh, Ackroyd super obnoxious and uh and john candy's just kind of exasperated with them
3: i might have to rewatch that one it's been a while
0: yeah i think you'd really enjoy it there's some great scenes that like, you know the raccoons talking to each other when they keep knocking over their garbage cans and things like that that was the best scene i do remember that and then some great music one one of my favorite scenes is that at the very end they're uh, they're all kind of singing and, and dancing to wilson pickett's land of a thousand dances which is a lot of fun good stuff good stuff yeah Yeah, so, okay, so would you recommend this, or is this one just, uh, if you're an Ackroyd fan, this is more of a curiosity to you? For campy 80s flicks, I would totally recommend this
3: flick. I enjoyed it enough uh, to where I would recommend it. I think I enjoyed it much more when I was a kid versus now, but I definitely enjoyed it. And let's face it, you're not going to spend a bunch of money watching this movie, so it's probably worth the price of admission, which is probably nothing.
0: Right, and it's only ninety minutes out of your
3: life. There you go. So there and, you and go, and it's and it's worth it for get down with your bad hot keto self.
0: <laughs> there you go. Again, thank you so much, Stephen.
3: Thanks, Brian. Appreciate you.
1: Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis
0: and the Bad Beat Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on thatmetalstation.com.